0: Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top 5 GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode.
1: Coming up in episode 95 of the GDPR Weekly Show, we begin with a look at vulnerable employees returning to work after they've been off sheltering during COVID-19 and what for you as an employer are the COVID-19 and GDPR implications of them coming back to work. Following on the top ID19 theme, we also then have a look at the GDPR implications of redundancy. We also look at the Belgian DPA, who has issued some rules regarding the recording of people's temperature for access to buildings and ruled that it is unlawful under their data protection laws, but it should be borne in mind that that's under Belgian law and not under GDPR. That's explained a bit more in the article. And then finally, in connection with COVID 19 we have news that the UK House Secretary, Matt Hancock, had an embarrassment this week when his GP practice suffered a data breach. Away from COVID 19 we have news that Suffolk MP Dr Poulter has also suffered a data breach this week. And we then cross to the mainland Europe where Austrian ISP A1 Telekom has suffered a major data breach. Staying in Austria, we also have news that the first Austrian GDPR penalty, read the operation of CCTV, has been annulled in a judgment by an Austrian court. We then have news that Honda has suffered a further data breach, followed by an update on the Nintendo data breach. We then cross to America and we have news that community care patients are suing an accountancy firm over a data breach, We then look at legal lessons that can be learnt from the Capital One data breach. And finally this week we have news that Macy's and Bloomingdale's have reached an out-of-court settlement in a class action relating to a data breach which they suffered last year. We also have news during the programme, so do listen out for news of our competition that we're running to celebrate our 100th episode, which is now only five weeks away, where you could win £100. All you need to do is answer the question in the competition. So make sure you listen out for that. And please do take part, because someone will win £100. And who knows, it could be you. Your Coronavirus
0: Roundup. From the GDPR Weekly Show.
1: With the gradual return to work as we emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic, we thought we'd start this week with a look at what employers' obligations are towards sheltered workers and, in addition to that, what the GDPR implications of that were. So, if we begin with the concept of who is a sheltered worker, well, these are your employees who have been sheltering, as the name suggests, during the COVID-19 pandemic and, indeed, you may well have furloughed some of these people because these are the people who need to stay at home and avoid all contact with other people as much as possible. However, it's recognised that as we now move out of the furlough period, with furlough coming to an end in the UK after the summer, that it's time for employers to start giving some thought to what the requirements are for bringing those sheltered workers back to work. Bear in mind that the medical condition which led to them being sheltered in the first place, whether that's medical condition of them or of a member of their household, is still going to exist, so extra care does need to be taken. So the first thing to say is that wherever possible, of course, you should be arranging for that vulnerable worker to still be able to work from home. Now that might mean providing them with additional IT equipment at home so they can work effectively, It might mean providing them with a company mobile phone if that's needed to enable them to work effectively. But that should be your first step, should be to look at is there a way that this employee can still work for me but work for me at home even if that means maybe they're not doing the job that originally they were doing perhaps there's something a non-sheltered worker is doing which they could do at home and an unsheltered worker could come into your premises to perform the other function just worth thinking about. We all need to be flexible as we approach this new normal. However, if the shouted employee simply can't work from home, that you need to bring them back into the workplace, then the crucial thing is remembering the two metre gap between them and anyone else. And that means making sure that their workstation has a good two metres of clearance between it and any other workstation. And remember that that is behind and in front of the person and not just side to side. So you really need to sort of think of where the person sits and in effect draw a two metre diameter circle around that point and make sure there is no other person within that circle. But from a GDPR perspective, you're probably going to need to gather more health data from not just that employee, but indeed from all your employees. And that is probably going to require a change or an update to your employee privacy policy. This is something which we discussed in last week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Is that almost all employee and general privacy policies will have been written before COVID 19 and therefore will need additional clauses inserted to cover the collection of COVID 19 data? Now, as we discussed last week, you don't need specific consent for that in the UK, but you do need to detail in the privacy policy what data you are collecting, i.e., perhaps people's temperature, why you're collecting it to maintain the safety of the workforce and how long you're keeping it, as long as the pandemic lasts, probably. Or you may wish to keep it longer, perhaps. You might want to keep it for a couple of years, or up to six years. choice is yours. But you do need to give some talk to what you're doing there and what you're holding, and make sure you detail that, because, as I say, you don't need consent to hold the information, but you must make sure you've told the employees what you're holding, why you're holding it, and when you're going to get rid of it. This
0: is an important coronavirus update. Stay home. Protect our NHS.
1: With the release of economic data in the UK on Friday this week showing that the UK has suffered its biggest ever drop in output and therefore essentially the country is destined to enter a recession which all the analysts and indeed of course everyone here and indeed probably the whole business community in the UK is hoping we'll be very much a V-shaped recession and that we can climb back out of the economic mile we find ourselves in just as quickly as we've fallen into it. But it has to be accepted that that may not happen, and even if it does, unfortunately the pandemic is likely to lead to the need to make a number of staff redundant. They've been sheltered from that by the government furlough scheme, and very welcome that scheme has been. But it's inevitable, I think, in a number of industries, all it will actually have done is deferred redundancy. And we've seen an example of this, perhaps the biggest one that comes to mind in the UK currently, is with British Airways, who look like they could be reducing substantially the number of people who work for them. So what's all this got to do with GDPR, you might be asking yourselves? Well, one outcome from the issue of redundancy notices or even the start of discussions that you might be thinking of making some of your workforce redundant is leading to employees requesting copies of their data which you hold about them, which, of course, they're perfectly entitled to do. Now, bear in mind that that data is not only the data which you might hold on your HR system or your payroll system, but also they are entitled to request copies of any emails, either which are to them or from them, or in which they were named and discussed. Now, that gives rise to two issues, of course. One is you may be reluctant to reveal those emails to the employee, but you have no choice. And the second is that, even given that you have no choice, it's going to be, probably for most companies, a massive amount of work to actually try and retrieve those emails and actually produce them in a form which is suitable for the employee to look at. Because bear in mind, and this is very important, that when you do provide copies of those emails to the employee, you must redact anyone else's name that's included in that email. Otherwise, not only have you suffered the time that it's taken you to put the information together for the employee, but you've also committed a data breach because you revealed someone else's name. So do be very, very careful. Technically and legally, there is no limit on the amount of time which you are expected to spend on collating all these emails, but you must spend what a reasonable person in a court of law would consider to be a reasonable amount of time for you to spend on it. So no one's saying you've got to dedicate one employee a whole week to find the emails which one other employee has requested. That's not realistic. But neither is to say, oh well, we've carried out a cursory glance and in the first hour, these are the emails we found and therefore that's all you're getting. So you need to seek a compromise and, and I can't tell you a precise compromise because it's going to vary from taste to case. But you certainly should spend at least 10 hours, I would say, looking for emails relating to the person who's made the request. Unless, of course, in that time you've satisfied yourself that you have already found all the emails that are are find. There's no point carrying on searching once you've found everything. But 10 hours, and of course that's 10 man hours, so that might be one person for 10 hours or two people for five hours each, is probably a reasonable amount of time to spend hunting down emails relating to an individual employee. And obviously you're going to start at the most recent and work backwards, that's important too. Now... If it does end up going to an industrial tribunal or to a court of law, then you may be ordered to go about further than that. But in the first instance, I would say, use the 10-hour rule as a general benchmark on how much data you should be looking to retrieve and how much time you should be spending on it. Certainly in our experience in employment tribunals that we've been involved in, then the tribunal has accepted 10 man-hours as being a reasonable amount of time to have spent retrieving emails relating to an employee. Once you release that information to the employee, then it's up to them what they do with it. So why might they want this information? Well, because if you're making a decision about who to make redundant, then you need to be very clear that you document how you came to that decision. Because under GDPR, it's quite possible, and indeed some would even say quite probable, that an employee may query your reasoning behind how you came to your decision and you have to provide that information. So you can't just say, oh well, that's what we decided because your employee could quite legitimately turn and say, well, why? How did you come to that decision? What factors did you bear in mind when you came to that decision? So make sure you document all of that. It is really, really important that you keep that because you may need it at some point in the future and you may have to release that information to the employee if they request it. A small note here, you can't make any charge for providing that information the first time that an employee requests it. However, if they subsequently lose that information and they come back to you and say, I asked for this a month ago, but now I can't find it. So can you send it to me again? Then you are then entitled to make a reasonable charge for the time taken to provide that data. Now there's that horrible word reasonable again. You can charge whatever your hourly rate is per admin person for finding the data. So if you pay the person £10 you can charge £10 for each hour it took to find the data. So if it took 5 hours you can charge the person £50 to provide them with a copy of their data. That's all perfectly legitimate. But do try to think about this situation when you're thinking about making people redundant because where in the past you probably wouldn't have had to provide that information, now you do and that takes time. So when you're factoring in the cost of redundancy to your organisation, make sure you factor in some time for satisfying data subject access requests. Now, if you need help on a specific data subject access request and what you should be providing or not providing, we are, of course, always available to help. Just send your email to helpdesk at and one of our specialists will come back to you with advice.
0: Stay home, stay
1: safe. We've mentioned in previous episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show how various countries across the EU have imposed their own regulations on top of GDPR when it comes to dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. This week, Belgium chose to introduce some regulations in their country concerning temperature checks during the COVID-19 crisis. What the guidance says is that organisations cannot currently conduct temperature checks to the extent they record the results of these checks or the organisation's response to such checks in files, nor may organisations conduct temperature checks using sophisticated means such as thermal cameras, digital temperature scanners or other automated measuring means. However, the simple reading of individual temperatures without recording any data does not constitute a processing activity under GDPR and is therefore allowed from a data protection standpoint. The main takeaways from the new guidance in Belgium are that they are saying that simply reading an individual's temperature with a basic manual thermometer does not constitute processing of personal data under GDPR, in their opinion, provided that temperature data in response to the temperature checks, such as whether an individual's access to the premises is denied, are not recorded. If organisations record the response to temperature checks, e.g., an employer sends employees home following an employee temperature checks and records the reasons for sending those employees home for labour law purposes, then this would constitute a processing activity to which by which the requirements of GDPR apply and for which the valid legal ground is required. If the processing activity is not covered by law, and consent cannot be relied on due to an imbalance of power, which is always the case in an employer-employee relationship, then the actual recording of that data shall be considered unlawful. According to the Belgian Data Protection Authority, temperature checks using sophisticated means such as thermal cameras, digital temperature scanners and or other automated measuring means that allowing the reading of an individual's temperature at a distance constitutes processing activities involving health data under GDPR and therefore is not allowed. To the extent that temperature checks must involve the processing of house data, one of the legal grounds provided for under Article 9 of GDPR must be satisfied. According to the Belgian DPA, house data may only be processed for COVID-19 monitoring purposes where 1. The data subject has given his or her explicit consent to the processing. 2. It is necessary for the purposes of carrying out the obligations and exercising specific fields in the fe- rights in the field of employment, social security and social protection law, and to the extent it is authorised by union or member state law or a collective agreement providing appropriate safeguards for the fundamental rights and interests of the data subject. Three, it is necessary for reasons of substantial public interest on the basis of union or member state law. Or four, where it is necessary for reasons of the public interest in the area of public health on the basis of the Union or Member State law, which must provide suitable and specific safeguards of individual rights and freedoms, in particular professional secrecy, the Belgian DPA, in their judgment, say that they consider consent not to be an appropriate legal basis to legitimise attempted checks, as a consent must be freely given, and b individuals must have the right not to give their consent for the processing of personal data and to object to attempted checks and c. In the field of employment, employees may feel pressured to consent due to the imbalanced nature of the relationship with their employer. According to the Belgian DPA, even when consent is considered valid, it cannot be used to legitimise excessive processing of personal data. This would be the case, for example, where processing is not necessary to achieve the purpose. The guidance further clarifies that there is currently no specific legal basis under Belgian law that would allow organisations like employers or schools to conduct systematic temperature checks involving the processing of house data. While employers have an obligation to ensure health and safety at the workplace, according to the Belgian DPA this obligation is not specific enough to legitimise the processing of house data for Cobb ID 19 monitoring purposes. The Belgian DPA therefore calls upon the Belgian legislator to fill this legislative gap to the extent necessary in the current context. The Belgian DPA finally stresses that temperature checks are only partly effective in detecting COVID-19 as not all infected patients will have a fever and a fever could be a symptom of some different illness anyway. Now it's important to stress that all of this that we just said only applies in Belgium at the moment. We don't have views from other ICOs or DPAs across Europe apart from the UK ICO who has said that the recording of temperature is fine. Because their view is it can be carried out either under consent, although that's difficult in an employee employer situation, or it can be carried out under the vital interests. Because there's an argument that recording this information is in the vital interest not only of the person whose to is being taken, but the vital interest of the other employees of the company, or C, that there's a legitimate interest. So if you're in the UK, don't worry about what we've just said in this article concerning what the Belgian DPA has said. But obviously if you are in Belgium or you're in a country where the DPA has not yet formed an opinion, then you may want to take heed of this ruling from the Belgian DPA.
0: Anyone can spread coronavirus. Stay at home. Protect the NHS. Save lives.
1: The health sector was caught on a live microphone, admitting he was unaware of a data breach involving confidential patient information at his own GP practice until asked about it at a virtual conference. Babylon Health, a telemedicine company that enables people to have GP consultations over video chat, admitted to the breach on Tuesday night. A software in the company's app had led to patients being presented with the recordings of other users' consultations with their doctors. At least three patients were affected, the company said, and none of them had viewed the videos. Speaking at the Virtual College Festival, the House Secretary, Matt Hancock, said he was unaware of the data breach, but that it did not affect his views on the value of private partnerships within the NHS. What I care about is getting results, Hancock said, when companies would come and help in the middle of a pandemic. The honest truth is there's no way we'd be able to deal with all this without the support of the tech companies. After the panel was ended, the audio of Hancock's conversation with his interviewer, the Ted Ross Harry de Treville, continued to broadcast. The Babylon thing, I should have known, and Dr. Beard saying, especially since they're my GP. After the Twitter build told him that the beach meant that someone may have been given access to his medical consultations, and joked, honestly, they know more about my bunion than anybody? Georgia, the broadcast center off. A spokesman for the Information Commissioner's office, the ICO, said, Babylon House contacted the ICO regarding an incident and advice was provided. People's medical data is highly sensitive information. Not only do people expect it to be handled carefully and securely, organisations also have a responsibility under the law. When a data incident occurs, we would expect an organisation to consider whether it's appropriate to contact people affected and to consider whether there are steps that can be taken to protect them from any potential adverse effects. Naomi Muldoon, the Senior Director of Trust and Security at OneLogin, said that the breach remained a serious cause of concern. By allowing members of the public GP sessions to become public, they potentially revealed among the most sensitive information available about an individual's health, which could in turn be leveraged by further cybercriminals and information for social engineering campaigns. Babylon Health confirmed yesterday that they were now certain that only three patients who had booked and had appointments with the GP practice had been affected and had been incorrectly presented with recordings of other people's consultations. They were also confident that these users had not viewed the videos, even though they'd been made available to them. If we receive any further update on this, either from the ICO, the GP Surgery Concerned, Babylon Health, or Matt Hancock, we will of course sprint to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. And now, the rest of this week's news. Matt Hancock was not the only MP involved in a data breach this week. Suffolk MP Dr Dan Poulter has reported his own office to the ICO after the names and addresses of 177 of his constituents were mistakenly sent out on an attachment to an email. The spreadsheet was accidentally attached to the email instead of a leaflet from the Government explaining its food standards policies to people who had written to the central Suffolk and North Ipswich MP with concerns about changes to safety in any post-Brexit trade deal. After the emails had been sent out, recipients received seven further messages from Dr Porter's office asking for the original emails to be recalled. One constituent who received the email but wanted to remain anonymous said... I'm pretty shocked and appalled that this data has been sent out to so many people without my knowledge or consent. They've obviously realised their mistake as they've sent out seven retail email attempts. But something like this really shouldn't be happening as that's now mine and 176 other people's home addresses and email addresses which have been broadcast for anyone on this email to see. Dr. Poulter said, In the first instance I would like to apologise unreservedly on behalf of my office to those affected. This is not something that has happened in my office before and the privacy of my constituents and their personal information is a matter of the highest concern to me. Every effort is made to ensure that all personal information is maintained by my office securely and safely. He went on to say, While this appears to be an entirely isolated case of administrative error, I have nonetheless asked for an urgent investigation to be conducted in my office and I have immediately contacted the Information Commissioner's office to seek further guidance. A spokeswoman for the Commissioner's Office confirmed that they had received a report from Dr. Porter and they were now waiting to hear what would happen next. Rather like the episode last week with two emails being sent out to the wrong people via CC and revealing their email address, this particular breach perhaps illustrates how a similar data breach can take place with an attachment to an email which shouldn't be there, i.e. it's not the attachment you meant to send. Once again, it's an issue where it's well worth training your staff on how to check what they're sending in an email and what they're sending is correct. And again, if you need any help with that, please contact us by emailing helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. If we receive any further update on this, either from the ICO or from Dr. to himself, then we will of course bring that to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show.
0: We are counting down to episode 100 of the GDPR Weekly Show. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1.
1: We move over to mainland Europe now and to Austria, where this week the Austrian largest internet service provider, A1 Telecom, admitted to a security breach. The company admitted to suffering a malware infection in November 2019. A1 said its security team detected the malware a month later, but removing the infection was more problematic than it had initially anticipated. From December 2019 to May 2020, A1 said its security team had battled with the malware's operators in attempts to remove all of their hidden backdoor components and kick out the intruders. A1, which didn't disclose the nature of the malware, didn't say if the intruders were a financially focused cybercrime gang or a nation state hacking group. The Austrian ISP said that the malware only infected computers on its office network, but not its entire IT system, which consisted of more than fifteen thousand workstations, twelve thousand servers and thousands of applications. It's understood that the attackers took manual control of the malware and attempted to expand its initial foothold on a few systems to the company's entire network. A1 said the attacker managed to compromise some databases and even ran database queries in order to learn the company's internal network. In interviews with the Austrian press, A1 said that the complexity of its internal network helped prevent the attacker from making their way to other systems. A1 told German news site Heiss that despite a pretty serious compromise that lasted more than six months, the attacker had not got their hand on any sensitive customer data. However, a whistleblower claimed that the intruders made very specific database queries of location, phone numbers and other customer data for certain private A1 customers and downloaded massive amounts of customer data. According to A1, the company kicked the hackers off its network last month. Since then, A1 has reset passwords for all of its 8,000 employees and has changed passwords and access keys to all of its servers. Christian Hachette, the Austrian blogger and security researcher who first broke the story, said the whistleblower claimed the hack was carried out by Gallum, a codename used by Microsoft to describe a Chinese nation-state hacking group which specialises in hacking telecom providers worldwide. A1 declined to comment on the whistleblower's attribution. If we receive any more information on this, as always, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show.
0: You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden.
1: If you are a regular listener to the GDPR weekly show then you may remember that back in September 2018 we brought you news that the Austrian Data Protection Authority had imposed one of the first penalties for unlawfully operating video surveillance based on GDPR in Europe. In its decision at the time the Data Protection Authority concluded that a betting shop that had used video surveillance was not only filming the direct entrance to the business premises of the shop but also the public parking and traffic area in front of it thus going far beyond the area where filming was necessary to achieve the video's purpose, i.e. protection of property. In addition, the Data Protection Authority claimed that the video surveillance was not suitably disclosed, the statutory maximum storage period of 72 hours for video recordings was not observed, and no protocols were kept to the processing operations, leading to a total fine of €4,800 imposed by the Data Protection Authority on the company involved. The company subsequently appealed against the decision and in the current ruling, dated 19th August 2019, the Austrian Federal Administrative Court annulled the administrative penalty imposed by the Austrian Data Protection Authority due to procedural irregularities. According to Austrian jurisdiction, the Data Protection Authority can impose administrative fines on a legal entity for violation of the GDPR and the Austrian Data Privacy Act respectively if the violations are committed by individuals that hold a leading position in the legal entity concerned, or if the violations are caused by lack of supervision or control by a person in a leadership role. However, neither the decision nor any other procedural act of the Data Protection Authority indicated whatever behaviour by which individual had led to the infringements and was therefore attributable to the legal entity and could therefore be used as a basis for the administrative fine imposed. As the leading individual required was never named and thus never specified by the Data Protection Authority within the statutory time limits for prostitution, the Federal Administrative Court had to annul the administrative penalty imposed on the company. The Austrian Data Protection Authority has only just released this information. But I think it's fair to say that it shouldn't be overinterpreted by any organisations outside of Austria because this particular requirement for identifying the individual who committed the at within the legal entity was very much a condition of Austrian law and not something more widely applied across Europe.
0: Celebrate our 100th episode with us and you could win £100. Just name the five countries where we have most listeners worldwide. Listen out for more details.
1: Thanks, Isabella. Yes, it's true. All you have to do to be in with a chance of winning £100 when we come to celebrate episode 100 in a few weeks' time is to guess which five countries we have the most listeners in. Just list down the five countries, put them on an email to us, and one lucky person will win £100. We also have some limited edition t-shirts and mug for runners-up. So don't delay, do it today. Hey Mike, tell our listeners what they have to do. Send your entry to competition at gdprradioshow.com Honda has confirmed a cyber attack on its networks that is widely believed to have involved deployment of snake ransomware. Honda admitted that production, sales, and development activities have all been affected and that their customer and financial services have been unavailable. Rumours on social media are that production globally has been stopped, although it's not been possible to confirm this with Honda as to whether this is anything to do with this data attack or whether in fact it's due to the coronavirus situation worldwide. This new attack comes after Honda last year left an Elasticsearch database exposed to the public with upwards of 40 gigabytes of data relating to the firm's internal systems and devices spotted by security researchers. And indeed we brought that to you in previous episodes of the GDPR weekly show. Honda appears to have had some machines with remote desktop protocol, RDP, access publicly exposed. RDP is a common threat vector for ransomware operations. Late on Tuesday, a spokesperson for Honda said that Honda can confirm that a cyber attack has taken place on the Honda network. They went on to say, We can also confirm that there is no information breach at this point in time. Work is being undertaken to minimise the impact and to restore full functionality of production, sales and development activities. At this point, we see minimal business impact. However, the company's Twitter feed showed that both Honda Customer Service and Honda Financial Services, the company's lending arm, were experiencing technical difficulties and were unavailable. Any customers with issues with their Honda virtual at the moment are being urged to direct message Honda via Twitter with their full name, their VIN number, mileage, address, email, best contact number and other details. Although this has already backfired at least once with the customer posting all those details publicly on Twitter rather than via direct message. If we receive any further information from Honda on this data breach or indeed whether they come back to say that some of their data has been affected which would fall under GDPR then we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly shows, then you may remember that back in episode 88, we brought you news of a data breach at Nintendo. At that time, Nintendo estimated that around 160,000 accounts had been compromised, but it's now had to come back to say that having carried out further investigation, it now believes that some 300,000 Nintendo accounts were compromised and had their Nintendo Network ID revealed. As a result of the breach, Nintendo believes hackers will have gained access to credit card and PayPal details, as well as personal information such as full names, dates of birth and email addresses. In an update posted on Nintendo's Japanese support page, Nintendo explained that it has reset the passwords for those affected accounts and notified customers of the breach. In a statement, a Nintendo spokesman said, We posted a report on unauthorised login on April 24th, 2020, but as a result of continuing the investigation after that, there were an additional 140,000 NNIDs that may have been accessed maliciously. He went on to say, We have also reset the passwords for these 140,000 NNIDs and the Nintendo accounts that were linked with them and contacted the customers separately. At the same time, we are taking additional security measures. As was the case when the breach was originally confirmed back in April, Nintendo is encouraging all users to enable two-step verification for their Nintendo account and is no longer allowing people to use the Nintendo Network ID to sign into their network account. This is the second update we've had on this from Nintendo and obviously should we receive any future updates from Nintendo we will of course bring them to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show.
0: Often imitated but never duplicated.
1: Over to America now, and a class-action lawsuit has been filed against the accounting firm BST & Co over a ransomware attack that breached the data of 170,000 patients from community care physicians in New York. The class-action lawsuit was filed in the New York Supreme Court in Albany at the end of May on behalf of Alma Teach III, a patient of community care physicians. Community Care Physicians is not listed as a defendant in the case. First reported in February, May's ransomware hackers attacked the accounting firm's network in December 2019. The impacted server contained data from some of BST's local clients, including those from Community Care. The investigation found that the attack lasted for three days from December fourth to December seventh, 2019. The compromised data included both financial and patient information such as names, date of birth, billing codes, medical record numbers and the like. BST recovered the impacted data from its backups. The attack was claimed by the Maze hacking group, posting what they purported were full details of records from BST on the dark web for sale. In the statement, the FBI said from its initial observation, Mays uses multiple methods for intrusion, including the creation of malicious lookalike cryptocurrency sites and mail spam campaigns, impersonating government agencies and well-known security vendors. The hackers are notorious for stealing data before launching a ransomware payload. Their cyber attack methods prompted other cyber criminals to follow suit, with what now is being called double extortion and frequently targeting the healthcare sector in the US. These concerns are spotlighted in the lawsuit against BST. The lawsuit argues that in recent years the Maze ransomware gain has gained notoriety for shaming victims by exfiltrating and publishing organisation-sensitive data. In particular, the Maze ransomware gang has been known to extort businesses by publicly posting breach data on the internet and threatening full dumps of stolen data if the Ring's customers don't pay for their files to be unencrypted. Despite learning of the ransomware attack on December 7th, notification letters were not sent to affected patients until more than two months later, on or around February 14th, 2020, well after the Maze ransomware game published the private data online for cyber thieves to access. The lawsuit also, also takes aim at the credit monitoring offered to the breach victims after the attack as it squarely places the burden on patients to investigate and protect their personal information from potential frauds. The lawsuit argues that BST sent instructions on how victims could enrol in credit monitoring services rather than offering those services. Further, the lawsuit claims that BST was intentionally negligent and reckless when protecting sensitive data from unauthorized access, failing to employ reasonable and adequate measures to protect its systems. Notably, New York has one of the toughest privacy laws in the US. The lawsuit argues BST violated those laws. Specifically, BST lacked adequate security practices on computer systems, while failing to implement standard policies and tools to prevent ransomware attacks and employ adequate network monitoring. The breach victims also argue that BST did not provide prompt notification that the attack occurred. The lawsuit claims that if BST had properly monitored its systems, it would have been able to detect the breach sooner. The negligent conduct has placed patients' identities at risk of fraud as their data is now in the hands of data thieves. The breach victims are seeking adequate credit monitoring services and financial compensation for damages incurred by the attack, including reimbursement for out-pocket costs. BST would also be required to improve its data security and perform annual auditing of its systems. It should be noted that this is the second healthcare data breach lawsuit filed against an entity in the last month. Some of the 160,000 victims of a month-long data breach at Avena Healthcare recently sued the Georgia providers, citing a lack of timely notification and inadequate security. These lawsuits have varying results and typically depend by the definition of the actual harm, which can be hard to demonstrate. A host of Housecare provider organisations have faced similar lawsuits have opted to settle with victims out of court, including Banner House, Primera Blue Cross and Quest Diagnostics. We will follow this case with interest and if we have any further updates for you we will of course bring them to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show.
0: You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host Keith Budden.
1: In last week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show we mentioned that that in the Capital One investigation Capital One had been told by the court to release Mandiant's post-breach report into what went wrong. And Marriott tried to argue that they shouldn't do this because the report was not a legal document but was an internal company report. However, the court didn't find that way and ordered Marriott to release the document which told the course have big implications on the success of legal action, class action in the US and indeed in Europe Against Capital One for damages on behalf of those people affected by the Capital One data breach. The court now released more information as to why they made the decision that the information should be released as being purely business information rather than legal information. They highlighted the following that the fees associated with Mandiant's retention were allocated as business-critical and not a legal expense and were therefore treated as business-designated fees, that the work performed by Mandiant was consistent with its 2015 retention and was not altered or otherwise directed by outside counsel in the new letter agreement and was therefore business-characterised work, the Mandiant relationship was managed by Capital One's manager of its Cyber Security Centre and not an attorney, so therefore the talk ruled it was a business-managed relationship, during the pendency of the litigation, the expenses were redesignated to the legal budget and control over mandate was transferred to outside counsel. However, the court found that these procedural adjustments did not alter the engagement or scope of the work to be performed, and so they ruled that the optics were not persuasive. The report was used by Capital One for various business purposes that were wholly unrelated to the litigation or the legal function, and therefore the court found they had a business use. And the court also found that the report had been widely circulated beyond outside counsel and those involved with legal or litigation matters for the company, including to Capital One's Board of Directors, at least 51 Capital One employees, four regulators, the FDIC, the Federal Reserve Board, the CFPB and the Office of the Controller of the Currency, Ernst and Young Accountant. Even for its internal distribution to the Legal Department and otherwise, Capital One failed to demonstrate that circulation was limited to a narrow scope of individuals, necessary to provide legal advice or for purposes of litigation. Based on the totality of the circumstances, the court concluded that Mandiant's analysis and report would have been completed in substantial form, regardless of whether there was any prospect of potential litigation. So, what can we learn from this for future cases to try and safeguard against this? Well, the first is to have a clearly defined legal scope of work. Where a consultant has already been engaged and works with your company, the retainer assigned the direction of counsel, i.e. legal counsel, must clearly define the terms and scope of work as distinct from the previous business relationship. The consultant must be paid by legal. If a consultant is being retained to provide support for legal advice or transcending potential legal claims, that work should be managed and paid for by your legal personnel. There should be a narrow internal distribution. Distribution of the investigation report should be limited to those individuals necessary to complete the legal analysis and litigation work. There should be no external non-legal distribution. Investigation reports should not be distributed to third parties. The distribution of the report should be tracked so that limited distribution can be demonstrated. And the consultant or the company that you're using to do the report should segregate legal from operational work. Where business and legal issues or analysis are part of the same investigation, steps should be taken to segregate the legal and litigation-related work products from business or operational reports. Now, of course, nothing can guarantee that a court will accept whether a document is a legal document or a business document, but following those steps should, at least based on this precedent, give some influence over the court in helping persuade that argument. If you're in a situation where you suspect there may be legal action taken for a data breach, please don't hesitate to contact us at helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com and one of our specialists would be delighted to get in touch with you and see how we can help service your organisation.
0: Celebrate our 100th episode with us and you could win £100. Just name the five countries where we have most listeners worldwide. Listen out for more details.
1: Thanks, Isabella. Yes, it's true. All you have to do to be in with a chance of winning £100 when we come to celebrate episode 100 in a few weeks' time is to guess which five countries we have the most listeners in. Just list down the five countries, put them on an email to us, and one lucky person will win £100. We also have some limited edition T-shirts and mug for runners-up. So don't delay. Do it today. Hey, Mike, tell our listeners what they have to do. Send your entry to competition at gdprradioshow.com And we finish this week with news that the US department store giant Macy's has agreed to pay almost $200,000 to settle a lawsuit brought over a data breach, according to a report in Footwear News. The class-action lawsuit was brought after a third party managed to obtain customer information from Macy's in spring 2018. In the lawsuit, plaintiff Anna Carroll accused the 162-year-old company of failing to properly secure customer data against cyber attackers. On June 5th this year, Macy's received final approval from a federal judge in Alabama to settle the suit. The retailer has set aside $192,500 to be allocated to eligible class members. Under the terms of the settlement, plaintiff Anna Carroll will receive a payment of $2,500 from Macy's a further $60,000 would be shelled out by the store to cover their legal costs. Members of the class action will be reimbursed up to $1,500, providing they can supply documents to prove that they incurred expenses and lost time as a direct result of the data breach. Claimants who are unable to prove that their time was wasted in dealing with the fallout from the breach can only claim a single $30 payment. Judge R. David Proctor told the settlement fair, reasonable and adequate in a memorandum. It should be noted that opting to pay the lawsuit to go away is not an omission of failure to implement adequate cybersecurity measures on Macy's part. The company has stated that it is not in any way liable for the cyber attack but chose to settle the suit because of the risks, uncertainties, burden and expense of continued litigation. To give a bit of history, Macy's customers were informed in July 2018 that a third party had used valid usernames and passwords to gain access to accounts on Bloomingdale.com and Macy's.com between April 26th and June 12th, 2018. In November 2019, Macy's notified its customers of a further data breach that occurred in October 2019. A Massachusetts consumer subsequently filed a class action against Macy's in March 2020 over the 2019 data breach. According to the lawsuit, Macy's has offered neither financial compensation nor an opportunity to obtain free of charge certain professional models' credit monitoring, aimed strictly at protecting against identity theft for one year. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk You can find out more about us at Insurity at www.insurety.co.uk and I look forward to speaking to you again same time, same place, next week. Have a good week everybody and remember to keep your data safe.
0: And cut. That's a wrap.
1: The GDPR Weekly Show is an Insurety production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Until
0: next time, bye bye.